0: China's influence in Australia's states and territories, global strategic assessment, and a US strategy on countering corruption. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, ASPI released the report, Taking the Low Road, which maps out the changing influence of China in Australian states and territories. Peter Jennings is joined by Report Editor, Emeritus Professor John Fitzgerald for a conversation on the report's findings.
1: Today we're marking the launch of, if I say so myself, a remarkable new ASPE publication, Taking the Low Road, China's Influence in Australian States and Territories, and I'm joined by the editor of the book, Professor John Fitzgerald AM, based at the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. And one of australia's leading china scholars john welcome and congratulations on the book thank you john i want to thank you for the mammoth effort in shepherding this work to conclusion Uh, john was part of this project from the get-go folks helping to structure the intellectual design of the work selecting the authors coaxing them through drafts and revisions and providing a masterful introduction and conclusion as well as writing the chapter on Victoria. John, I think you've done a brilliant job. And I should also say at the outset that uh, the book is the product of a collaboration between 13 different authors, all with deep academic media or public policy engagement on China matters. Just to explain some of the background to the project, the origin of the book goes back some years when it was becoming increasingly apparent That the PRC's engagement with Australia ran much deeper than simply a bilateral engagement with the federal government. Somewhat less clearly we could see growing PRC engagement with the states and territories and indeed with local governments. Of course business connections were known to be extensive and the relationships between Chinese universities and their Australian counterparts were burgeoning. So we came to the view that it could be potentially useful to undertake a detailed and structured look about the nature of this engagement at state and territory level. And additionally, to consider the PRC's own structures and approaches aimed at subnational jurisdictions, the constitutional issues that arise, and the picture as it related to engagement with universities in the business sector. The result is, I think, the most detailed study ever of China's engagement with Australia, separate from federally managed bilateral ties. And I should also note here the Conrad Adenauer Foundation for their support, uh, financial and intellectual, for the project. CASA's engagement comes about because they're a close partner of ASPI, but more importantly because the German federal system has its own experience of PRC engagement with the 16 lander governments. Further, CAS has a global network of offices in more than 120 countries. With this volume completed, we're looking to see if a broader comparative project might usefully lead to interesting results on a global basis. So that's by way of a bit of background, but let me turn to John now. Uh, John, can I ask you for your overall assessment of the key findings from the project?
2: Yes, Peter. (laughs) Well... We looked closely at Australia's states and territories and communities and found that they, pretty well all of them, enjoyed close and mutually beneficial relations with China for a good four decades from the 1970s. And we celebrate that. But then we find with Xi Jinping's ascent around 2012, 2013, authorities in China began in a sense calling in their chips leveraging long-standing sub-national partnerships with states and territory governments, with universities, business associations, community organisations and a host of other networks to voice their support for the party or for China's geopolitical interests in the region, sometimes uh, contrary to Australia's national interests. Uh, we find this is a, a sort of, uh, it's very concerted effort on China's part and that those links are very, very extensive and we report on those in detail. We find that state and territory governments that really had little formal role to play in national security, certainly under the constitution, could no longer escape it. We find that universities, along with business associations and community groups that rarely paid any attention to national security, suddenly find themselves entangled in public debates around what security, integrity, social cohesion and so on it was a tough learning experience for everybody involved And we we retrace this i guess we try to chronicle that learning experience that's happening in each state and territory within universities and within business organizations tracing an arc as we see it from kind of innocence to experience from an earlier age of experience to the age of xi jinping the, the the new era of xi jinping Um, The the findings are pretty detailed. We have a number of recommendations. I don't think I should go into them here. People are welcome to chase them up in the report.
1: John, the last 10 years really has been a remarkable story, hasn't it? I mean, from almost a complete switch of Australian emphasis from, you know, the um, uh, Julia Gillard's um, Australia in the Asian Century report, which was an incredibly upbeat statement, Relations with Asian countries, through to Tony Abbott's "open for business" uh, mantra, which uh, shaped the first few years of of his time as Prime Minister, and uh, in 2015, the signing of the um, Australia-China Free Trade Agreement, through to where we are at now, uh, where I would say, in the space of those seven or eight years, we've moved from focusing on the upside of the of the relationship to now being very strongly focused on the risks of the relationship. Is there anything that sort of stands out to you as the defining event during that period of time that kind of switched the Australian thinking on relations with the PIC?
2: I think we have to appreciate that relations with China were based on very high expectations. Australia had successfully negotiated. It's engagement with Asia, with Japan, with Korea, with Indonesia, with ASEAN. And it felt it could apply the same principles to China without really taking account of the very different political system and the different geopolitical ambitions of China. And it's discovering that China's not Japan, not South Korea, not ASEAN, that has come as a bit of a shock. It is a country which has very, very clear ambitions in the region, which wants to establish its dominance, which wants to remove the United States and the post-war order and all that represents from our region. This has profound implications for us, but for other countries in the region as well. We're not alone. As we have made this, as we call it, journey from innocence to experience, we find that others in the region have done much the same. Perhaps a bit, we've been a bit rowdier than others, a bit noisier. We've taken the debate into the public domain, where in other countries it's often held behind closed doors. But that's because we are a freewheeling federal democracy, our states and territories can really say and do as they please as really sovereign governments. Um, very few states in the region, oh, there are others, but have this sort of federal structure in which people say we should follow, you know, be more diplomatic in, in fact, a federal system finds it very, very difficult to act with one diplomatic voice. There are many voices speaking, many positions being taken up and they have a perfect right to do it. So it's it's managing the federation that we're talking about in this volume. How do we do that a bit better?
1: Mixed, John, with a sort of bit of characteristic Australian bluntness, wouldn't you say, has been uh, part of the, um, the issue as well?
2: Possibly. Um, I guess... Australia at home is Australia abroad, much as China. You know, the Communist Party home, we now discover, is the Communist Party abroad. Um, We need to understand that a country, as it behaves at home, is likely to behave abroad. Uh,
1: A good good point, John. Um, I I think it might be useful for our our listeners to understand um, this, I think, uniquely um, um, Chinese Communist Party entity called um, the, the United Front system. Can you just briefly explain what that is? Why why it sort of resides so centrally in terms of how the party thinks about its function? And um, what what does the United Front actually mean in practical terms for uh, uh, China's engagement in Australia?
2: Well, we have a wonderful chapter by New Zealand specialist Anne-Marie Brady on how the United Front applies at the local level. And I'd commend that to all readers. But, But generally speaking, I think we need to acknowledge... The United Front is not just a department or an agency. It's the way the Communist Party thinks about dealing with any entity other than itself. This is true of China at home. The way China, the Communist Party, deals with minorities, with business elites, with intellectuals, is through the United Front. The way it deals with... um, Overseas Chinese is through the United Front. It knows of no other way of dealing with an entity outside itself. I think that's a pretty important point to note. The Communist Party is the only actor with agency as far as it's concerned. And if it wants to deal with other actors that appear to have some sort of agency or sovereignty, it needs to co-opt them into its own system. That's known as the United Front. And then it can manage or deal with them. That's how China works at home. That's now how China is working abroad. In the Australia case, it means, for example, cultivating former political leaders to act as mediators with current government administrations on matters of interest to China, inviting respected voices within Australia to promote China's current foreign policy agenda. Um, It does this not just within Australia, but elsewhere. Setting up city-to-city and state-to-province relations through very personal and particularistic ties, but linked at the China end to the United Front system. And then shaping what people can say and should rightly think about China through schools and universities. That's all part of the United Front. And the majority then of United Front work is targeting all Australians, but there's a small part of it that focuses specifically on Chinese Australians. And that's what concerns Australians most of all. Uh, because in, in effect, China's muddying the waters in our local communities, stirring dissent, creating problems for Australian social cohesion and making it difficult for many Chinese Australians to stand up and participate in public life as they have every right to do. It also risks stirring racism, which is another problem we need to be mindful of. And the report addresses each of these issues.
1: John, uh, the launch of this book comes just a few days after revelations from Mike Burgess, the Director General of ASIO, about a state backed attempt to influence the selection of candidates for the forthcoming federal election. And since then, uh, it's become clear that China is the state in question. Um, On the night uh, Mike Burgess gave his speech, he wouldn't name uh, a state. uh, But that's simply, uh, I think, been allowed to come out through uh, media reporting that indeed uh, the intelligence community um, is talking about China when when Mike Burgess made those comments. Um, What are your thoughts about this in the light of the the pattern of PRC activities which are identified in the book?
2: Yes, so I wouldn't want to speak directly to the case that Mike Burgess raised because it's really hearsay at this point as to which foreign actor is involved, which state. But the the model he describes of intervention in a local politi- political process here in australia is very similar to one that we track in the book in the case of the businessman huang shangmo now it's clear he's not talking about that because that's past history and huang shangmo is no longer a resident in australia but it's clear that huang shangmo as a leader of the united front system in sydney was very active in the making political donations in um if not directly, then indirectly, participating in the selection of candidates for office in the New South Wales state parliament. And unlike other businessmen or businesswomen who might make political donations thinking it would promote their business, in every case, his purpose was to shift Australia's geopolitical position on the South China Sea to favour China. So this is targeted intervention by a political figure sorry, by a senior business figure with United Front ties in the local political system, in a sovereign parliament, seeking to affect the decisions that Australians take around their national interests relating to China's position in the South China Sea. If that's the pattern of behaviour um, that we've already established on the record, and I recommend the Independent Commission of Against Corruption Inquiry, which has yet to uh, lay, bring down its findings in this case, uh, I, I think we see that the, there's a pattern that's been established. Now, it could be, well be that other countries are following that pattern, that China is modelling something for others to follow. I wouldn't want to say that Mike Burgess is referring to China in this case. Nevertheless, that's a pattern we already know.
1: Uh, John, it's probably also worth um, bringing out that the, this type of um, um, covert influencing attempts is not u- uniquely limited to one Australian political party. I mean, I mean, Guangzhou was actually providing... Uh, funding to any any politician that would be prepared to accept it federally, and that that crossed party lines pretty regularly. Um, do, you, do you think that um, the, the sort of uh, approach that uh, the PRC would would be seeking to implement here would be relatively disinterested in the parties they were actually trying to uh, influence?
2: Ah, oh, the evidence shows that when uh, former political elites or eminent figures in the community are targeted. Um, that China doesn't really care where they sit on the political spectrum, so long as they have standing and status in the Australian community. And members Mm. of parliament, ministers, former prime ministers do, um, irrespective of their political colour. Yes, I think it's a grave mistake to suggest that there's a a partisan political dynamic at work here. That's just not the case.
1: Yeah. So finally, John, something that you've worked on uh, over the course of your career has been to understand and, and support um, the Chinese diaspora communities um, here in Australia, that it's a very diverse group of people. Um, uh, what are your thoughts about how we can work with Australians of Chinese descent to enable them to engage in our political process without fear of coercion from the PRC?
2: Well, it's not easy, is it, for Chinese Australians in particular. If, if China's the People's Republic, uh, the Communist Party, is muddying the waters. It's making it very difficult for Chinese Australians to participate and, and feel welcome to participate in Australian public life. So it's very reassuring, for example, just this week, uh, to see in the New South Wales by-election, Jason Yat-sen Lee get up. And it's clear that his election indicates Australians are capable of making rational choices, that Chinese Australians are welcome to participate, and when they do, Canada <clears throat> are elected. That's a terrific outcome, and it's very reassuring to all of us who are concerned that racism might raise its head around Chinese Communist Party uh, activities. That said, we still need to be mindful of, uh, with a forthcoming federal election, uh, of China's possible role in um, disinformation campaigns leading into that election. Now, this is unlikely to bear on any particular party. It's more likely to relate to particular candidates. Uh, but we there's a warning in today's Australian Financial Review, a very, very interesting one, by Kenny Chiu, a former a member of Canada's House of Commons, who was targeted on Chinese social media in Canada when he called on the Canadian government to introduce an Australian-style foreign influence transparency scheme. And a massive disinformation campaign was set underway saying this would harm Canadian Chinese, Chinese Canadians, Um, and that he should be voted out of office and he lost he lost office now we can't be entirely sure that's the reason but it's very clear as he points out in the article Australians need to be mindful that social media uh, which is really operated out of Beijing not locally here in Australia uh, is a platform on, on which a lot of disinformation can circulate Australians I mean we're mindful that uh, Prime Minister Morrison's account was sort of mucked about with. Well, that's big news, but of little consequence, frankly. What's of very little news, but of possibly grave consequence, is the possibility that uh, disinformation will be undertaken in Chinese language social media that has a widespread impact among Chinese Australian voters, which misinforms them about the Austra- Australia's position on this issue. Australia welcomes Chinese Australians as equal participants. Uh, in public life in this country. Australia stands up for Chinese Australians against foreign interference or um, surveillance of their lives. Uh, There's no sense in which um, Chinese Australians are not welcome as equal partners in Australia. Um, But messages could get out making claims to the the contrary. And uh, so it's up to the Australian Electoral Commission or somebody to keep an eye, it seems to me, on disinformation, I know this is a highly political and sensitive issue what is and is not information in an election campaign who can tell but I think where there are patterns of this kind such as Kenny Chu identifies then identifying a pattern could be a useful thing for the Australian electoral commission to do
1: I think something we're going to be watching very closely over the next 100 uh, or so days uh, John before we get to uh, to our federal election can can I thank you again uh, for joining us today but also for taking on what turned out to be a pretty substantial task to uh, edit this book I uh, I think you should be proud uh, of the result, it's uh, it's an excellent piece of work and uh, for those uh, listening to the pod- podcast uh, you, you will be able to go to the Aspie site and download Taking the Low Road um, or indeed um, email us if uh, you're interested in receiving a hard copy and that's all from this time thanks so much for joining us
0: While the impacts of COVID-19 are still being felt globally, tensions remain heightened between Russia and Ukraine, and a recent meeting between Putin and Xi has some analysts calling their relationship a de facto alliance. Michael Shoebridge speaks to Arthur Snell about some of the latest developments and why this is an important moment for democracies.
3: Arthur Snell, it's great to talk with you, I'm, I'm a fan of your Doomsday Watch podcast and the title makes me feel like I'm I'm a crazy optimist doing my uh, strategic analysis here at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, but there's a lot to talk about right now. I I think I'd, I'd like to start by saying, I, I think your recent series where you've looked at Russia, Ukraine, and you've looked at Xi and China, and then you brought it all together with a kind of uh, net assessment of, of what the future looks like. Uh, was fascinating because it had a bit of a an end-of-days theme to it. You know, the old order that, that we've seen work in many countries' interests since the end of World War II is kind of unravelling, and we see the rise of two different visions of the world, you know, the autocrat's view of the world with Xi and Putin in the middle of that, and then um, maybe it's a a returned re-energized democratic set of, of countries with a realization of some of their enduring strengths. So I, th- I think there was quite a gloomy assessment that, that came out uh, from, from the different conversations you've had recently. But how would you see things? Is Are we really just at an end of day's time with the triumph of autocracy or are we more in an interesting time of flux?
4: Well, Michael, thank you very much for that, for that introduction and, and for that Really important question because I think it does get to the heart of what we tried to do in this series. And I think I'm um, I'm sitting on the fence slightly, so that's avoiding answering your question. But I I guess there is the slight feeling of the end of days with some of these sort of global structures that have protected and enabled democracy and has seen d- democracy grow around the world. And of course, if you look, there are you know there are various sort of data sets that can tell you that democracy has been in retreat in recent years. Uh, there are more m- military coups happening in West Africa than were happening 10 years ago, those sorts of those sorts of uh, data points. But I think on the really big issues, you're absolutely right that if we look at um, the way the world's powerful democracies engage with and manage their relationships with the world's most powerful autocracies, and of course, that really means we're talking about China and Russia, and I put them in that order advisedly, I think we have actually just probably in, in the last twelve to eighteen months seen quite a change of approach. Now, of course, part of that is the fact that Donald Trump is no longer president of the US, but it, it's not just about that. The UK has transformed the way it deals with China, mm. um, and that was by no means a dead cert. You know, I was marginally involved with some of the sort of political debates around the UK's decision not to include Huawei's uh, technology in five G. Uh, which was in you know in 2020, and at the start of that process, it felt like something that had been completely decided. It was you know there, there was nothing to debate.
3: Yeah, well um, that's fascinating because I remember August 2018 is when the Australian government announced it was excluding high risk vendors from our 5G network, and that yeah. included uh, China's ZTE and Huawei. Yeah, uh, and at the time, the UK government's position was this was madness. Uh, it was just a matter of managing the risks and it could be done well as the UK was. So, you know, fast forward to now and UK policy and Australian policy look really closely aligned. Neither of us wants Chinese vendors in the heart of our digital networks.
4: Exactly. And and that's, you know, that in a way, I think is a good example of of the small decisions that democracies have to keep making in order to protect their integrity. Now, of course, in the UK, uh, there are plenty of other things that that have not happened that need to happen. You know, notably, uh, we are the laundromat for the Russian elite's money, um, and there's been a lot of talk about that. There's been a lot of talk about how you know legislation needs to be brought in, and of course, the the tension on the Ukraine border has brought that into sharp relief. But I think uh, being pretty blunt about it, it, nothing's happened yet. You know, it's still no. The
3: case. We kind of wonder how London real estate prices would go if. Um, <laughs> odd russian money was removed from the equation uh, that's uh... yeah
4: and you put your finger on something there which is that there is a huge tail of people uh, have an interest in in this sector it, it, the, the real estate people the financial advisors the, the the legal services and all the rest of it and so uh, a large pro- a, a, not a large proportion but a, a large number of of well-connected and wealthy people are are benefiting from, from this arrangement. But coming back to the very big picture, because that's where you started. And of course, I know that's, that's sort of the, where the listeners to this podcast would be interested. I think democracies have realised that they've uh, come to, you know, they might be standing on the edge of a precipice. And democracies are now, uh, and I'm talking about the big, you know, the European Union, Australia, UK, USA, and one or two other countries, they are now taking it seriously. They're beginning to talk about what they need to do to protect a way of life that we've basically enjoyed since the end of World War II. Now, whether or not we're going to go to the next stage and take the actions we need to take, I think is we'll see in the, probably the next five to 10 years.
3: Yes, I suppose, you know, sitting here in Canberra right now, uh, we've got the Quad Nations, you know, India, Japan, Australia uh, and the US foreign ministers in town, uh, they're here on the back of two Quad nation leaders' meeting that, meetings that happened last year. Uh, one of those leaders' meetings was meant to be unthinkable, but at, let alone having two of them in a single year. Uh, yep. There are actions being put to words through these faster-moving mini And, of course, on the military technology and military power front, There was the amazing uh, development of the Australia-US-UK arrangement, AUKUS, uh, in September last year. And uh, five years ago, if we'd been talking and and I'd said, well, you know, I can see the UK and America sharing nuclear submarine technology with Australia because deterring China will will be important enough for that to happen. You and many of my fellow Australians would probably have said I was crazy, but it's happened. So yeah. there are some there's some real meat being put on on the words now, I
4: think, yeah, absolutely, and I guess um, looking as it were for, on the other side of that fence, it's quite interesting to note as we're talking clearly the Winter Olympics are taking place in Beijing, most uh, leaders of major democratic countries or I think all leaders of major democratic countries have have basically boycotted it at the diplomatic level, uh, and you end up with the spectacle of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, in this slightly sort of grumpy autocrat summit meeting together, no doubt furiously agreeing with one another about how everybody else is out to get them, and you know how unfair everything is. And and to some extent, on the one hand, you know it's easy slightly to sort of satirise what's happening there, but on the one hand, what what you're seeing is is these countries starting to understand that their behaviours have consequences. You know, ultimately. If you host the Olympic Games, you want everyone to turn up. It makes you look bigger and better and more. Powerful yes, it's
3: than that. it's funny, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you've you've organized a party and no one turns up, you end up celebrating it alone and that's right. that's, well, and that's a pretty miserable
4: experience. I, but I, then I, I, and then the other thing though is of course you you find that the 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 dwindling number of people that agree with your global outlook, there's a slight sort of move to the extremes, I think. So you know China is traditionally extremely wary of any country anywhere making territorial claims outside its you know existing footprint. I mean not that China doesn't do it itself, but it, it has this you know longstanding tradition, one of non-interference in, uh, in, in other uh, countries, but specifically on this issue of sort of territorial aggrandizement. And then China finds itself because it's run out of friends uh, it, you know in a meeting room with Vladimir Putin not quite giving him a green light but sort of sort of suggesting that yeah if you want to go and do something in ukraine you know it's understandable you've been pushed into this position so it's yes. it's this sort of odd odd perspective of of the, the 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 two people who've decided that they're outsiders justifying each other's behavior
3: yes it's a fascinating thing you know they're uh, projecting strength and trying to speak on behalf of great chunks of the world but they sound lonely and anxious like there's bits in there about you know still a fear of color revolutions which you know the fact that that wording makes it into their 15 page statement really tells you it matters to them and you know the idea that western countries are somehow working feverishly to make their their populations unhappy and overturn the governments of russia and china or other states around them it's well a it's wrong but it does speak to a real deep-seated anxiety about their
4: hold on power. Indeed. And certainly anybody who's looks at the history of interventions overseas by uh, democratic powers in the last 20 years, you know, we could talk about Iraq, we could talk about Libya. um, The idea that countries such as the US, the UK, Australia, have the capability, let alone the will, to create democratic revolutions in Ukraine or Georgia it's just nonsense but it, it's fascinating because this concept of a color revolution is is very powerfully held in places such as Moscow whereas i think in 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 most democratic countries people don't really know what it is i mean you know people listeners to your podcast will be very familiar but it's not it's not a term that has much currency
3: well, or or resonance um now um, no. another thing i i would thinking about this end of days there and i know we're almost out of time is um, you know, this narrative that democratic states aren't resilient, uh, they're weak and declining. I look at the pandemic and, you know, the the deaths in, in a society like the US, you know, I think it's up to about 900,000 uh, deaths from COVID, over 900,000 now, um, and, you know, something like 77 million infections. Uh, and yet the resilience of the US. Uh, as an economy and as a source of creativity over this same time is extraordinary. So in a way, they've soaked up major population losses and demonstrated their resilience. So uh, are we actually at a time of powerful creative democracies rediscovering some of the strengths they've forgotten about? That's how it feels to me sitting down here in Australia.
4: Well, I certainly think the pandemic it's possible to look at it and see that actually it's a story of extraordinary success. Um, and of course, it's very tempting to fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, particularly with the case of America, you know, the death rate, and the the just the raw numbers are, are pretty terrifying. And, you know, there's a whole anti-vax movement, people who seem to be have been getting vaccinated for all kinds of other illnesses for decades are suddenly mm. anti-vax. So it, it's very easy to get stuck on that. But if we think about some of the big picture things, so the global supply chain didn't break down. Yes, it got stretched. It, 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 there were certain blockages. It slowed down in certain places. but It didn't break down. And so we have this very, very complex global supply chain. And that continued to, to tick along in spite of all the challenges of a, of a global pandemic. And then clearly, the, you know, the, the creation of relatively large number of new types of vaccine pioneering technologies effective vaccines against us you know a coronavirus um which in itself is 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 you know a, a novel virus that people weren't familiar with so i think that there's lots to look at there which, which can give a lot of calls for optimism but i suppose there is also um what we what we haven't really talked about and i realize we're out of time but it's you know the specter of of the sort of nationalist populism exists in almost yes. every democratic country now and yeah. that 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 is the sort of, it's a kind of cancer inside the system. And we may be able to treat the cancer. We've got good medicines. But if we don't treat it, I think we we can get dragged down a a very difficult pathway.
3: Oh, absolutely. I think that's a key part of any resilience. And, you know, it is different in different societies. Like, uh, you know, here in Canberra, there have been some anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist protests in recent days, but it's hundreds of people. Uh, It's not... It's not a mass movement. Um, one of the lessons for Australia is we actually seem to trust government more than we told ourselves we did before all this hmm. happened. So it's different That's in different parts of the world. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot, a lot of flux. But uh, amongst this picture of you know um, empowered autocrats, I think we've got to take stock and see some of the regrowing latent strengths of of powerful democracies. There's a lot more to happen. I'd love to talk to you about a deeper look at at Europe in in a later session, Arthur. But for now, thanks so much. And uh, for someone who runs a podcast called Doomsday Watch, I think there's at least a glass quarter full from time to
4: time. So thanks so much for giving us the time for the chat, Arthur. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. It's been a pleasure.
0: In December last year, the White House released the US Strategy on Countering Corruption, the first strategy of its kind. Anastasia Capetis and Dr. Tegan Westendorf discussed this strategy and whether it
5: will be enough to counter corruption globally. Hi Anastasia, how are you doing today? I am not too bad, Tegan, and I'm really happy to be joining you today to talk about global corruption uh, and what the US has just announced that it's going to try and do about it. Absolutely. Me too. And I was thinking perhaps we could start off
6: with um, a little bit of background for you. Can you situate where we are? This has
5: come out late last year. What's the context? What is the context? Why now? Why is this important now? If you cast your mind back sort of 15 years ago and we think about uh, money laundering and corrupt networks, we think about drug cartels. We think about Pablo Escobar. um, We think about that kind of activity. But The latest Biden announcement for its uh, new strategy on countering corruption is really aimed at how this kind of crime has metastasized and brought in a whole bunch of new actors as well and it also is focusing on how the EU, uh, the US, uh, the UK and Australia as well um, have a whole bunch of uh, institutions actually n- enable this kind of corruption, money laundering, so that's one thing. So if we look back to 2016, and that was when the Panama papers kind of exploded onto the scene. For those who don't remember, uh, this is uh, involved a massive data leak from a firm called Mossack Bonsacca, um, a Panamanian company that specialised in creating shell companies and, and doing sort of tax minima- minimisation. And over 20 different media agencies analysed all of this stuff and found a really new universe of globalised, financialised corruption that involved um, a lot of political figures as well. So, what we're here, what we're really talking about is that 2016 the notion um, that there are a whole bunch of really massive kleptocrats out there who are looting state treasuries and then hiding their their funds, their ill-gotten gains offshore, began to emerge and began to emerge in the popular consciousness as well. And that wasn't the only thing that was quickly followed on by the Paradise Papers in 2017. The FinCEN files, um, which was another data drop, but this time coming out of the US Treasury, their FinCEN department is the bit that, that looks at financial crimes. That data drop revealed really that, Major banks, including uh, Morgan Chase, uh, Deutsche Bank, um, Citibank, uh, etc., the major financial institutions that kind of oil the global economy, were very much involved um, in money laundering and enabling money laundering. So, that was the point of that one. Um, that again has been followed um, by the Pandora Papers. That was last year, again, the biggest data drop to date. Uh, and international media institutions are still going through all of that and and trying to to pull out you know cases of importance um, as well. So with all of this stuff flooding the media, as well as an immense amount of very detailed reporting by journalists over the last few years, has has really brought home a couple of things to um, the U.S. administration. And one is that essentially that these magnitude of these financial crimes um, is very much linked to the preservation and expansion of auto- autocracies. So the big thing here is that countering corruption very much links to de- uh, Biden's um, d- democracy promotion agenda. He makes that very explicit in, in the fact sheet um, that the White House released on this stuff. And the second thing here is that no government's really had a strategy at that level identifying corruption as one of the major national security threats and a direct threat to democracies around the world. So that's that's the other very pertinent thing to to, to realise about this one. Some anti-corruption activists uh, and specialists like Paul Massaro who advises the Bipartisan Helsinki Commission says that this is the long telegram of the 21st century. That's that's a big claim. The long telegram, as international relations nerds will know, is essentially defined the Cold War. It was a telegram coming out of Moscow from the US Embassy there that basically said, uh, the Russians need to be contained. So um, that's, and George Kennan, again, a giant of international relations theory, penned that long telegram. So, is this particular strategy analogous to that? So, for some Congress folk in the US um, and on both sides of the House, so for example, uh, recently a Republican senator said, the big threat is no longer ideological communism. It is international crony capitalism. That's that's a kind of a significant statement from a senator um, from North Carolina. Sorry, a, a representative from North from South Carolina um, to make. So moving swiftly to um, last week, members of Congress met with members of the EU to get together and to try and coordinate um, a big strategy on this stuff. So. What we'll be digging into today is how effective is this approach going to be? Tegan, what do you think about some of that stuff? Well, I think there are several objectives
6: involved in the strategy, and there are two really interesting related objectives that I saw. So, the first one is stopping corruption, put simply, and the second one is a type of meta effect of addressing what I would say is a critical public trust deficit. So, the first one, looks at reducing organised financial crime and corruption by targeting those activities with law enforcement at a domestic and also transnational level through domestic and multilateral efforts, which include in some ways policing and diplomacy. And also importantly, reducing the vulnerabilities to these kind of crimes across the all, all arms of US government. Now, that looks to me quite logical and straightforward This, what I'm calling a meta effect, is through stopping corruption, seeking to demonstrate that the rich and powerful are not above the law, to put it somewhat crudely, and working towards reversing this huge trust deficit trend in US government. And to be clear, I'm not specifically talking about the trust deficit that Biden is experiencing at this moment of trying to put through Build Back Better, though he has a problem there too, but a broader multi-decade trend in public trust being lost in democratic governance and institutions. And we saw that most fiercely evidenced on January 6 last year. So I think from looking at this um, strategy, it seems like this is intended to be achieved by building resilience to the anti-government narratives and conspiracies that Biden's domestic terrorism strategy identifies as being a direct national security threat as well in terms of eroding or compromising these democratic institutions and governance processes. So I see these two strategies dovetailing somewhat together and really articulating needing the American people to get back behind their institutions as key, not just to the Biden presidency and administration, but to the survival of the American government in its its current form. And that sounds somewhat uh, dramatic, but this is at least what we're seeing posed as a question in mainstream news media, both in America and actually Australia. So I think the question then is, this all looks great to me, what are the chances of success?
5: That is the question because just to throw some some numbers um, out there, you know, again, according to specialists and transparency advocates, 90% of money laundering goes undetected. The, all the kinds of algorithms that financial institutions have kind of set up to catch suspicious behaviour, 95% of them create false positives. So that means uh, suspicious activity, like moving lots of money around quickly, that happens all the time, can generate huge amounts of red flags that all have to be investigated and waste a lot of investigators time. And then there's the other uh, emerging trend, which is kleptocrats uh, and other bad actors using crypto essentially to hide money. So those are some challenges some pretty obvious challenges there. So how, how is this actually going to work and how is it going to do better? Obviously there are a lot of uh, anti-money laundering laws on the books. And one of the things that the FinCEN data drop showed is that, um, that you know, the big financial enablers of money laundering are often just ignore that because money laundering is profitable. So um, to dig further in uh, to what is being proposed here, one of the biggest things that this approach is looking at is real estate purchases in the U.S. because, you know, they, they're an absolute dark money float, just really loves U.S. real estate. So the whole And Australian real estate. And Australian real estate, totally, and U.K. real estate, let's not forget. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and of course, you know, real estate in any of the sophisticated capitals around the world, they like Paris, Berlin, etc. all have this problem and it drives up real estate prices and creates, you know, asset inflation, um, as well as a whole bunch of other effects. So the first thing is Biden's essentially asking himself how do we tighten up the US uh, real estate market? And that includes things like it's really about transparency. So will real estate purchasers be allowed to make, you know, big cash transactions owned by, you know, shell company after shell company after shell company after shell company, or is the approach going to be you always have to be able to find a, you know, a beneficial owner um, of, of that asset. That's, again, an approach that this strategy has asked Treasury to look at. So it's worth mentioning here that a lot of the detail of this strategy writ large has yet to be filled in. So the strategy has been announced um, and now it's up to advisors and government departments to kind of you know, fill in those some of those blanks. The second thing is really um, about intelligence collection and analysis. So I think that really speaks to one of the problems we identified here, which is that um, 95% of the intelligence that sort of is generated creates false positives, and that suggests to me that that method of generating intelligence on financial crimes is just completely flawed. So um, figuring out how to make intelligence better is going to be a massive challenge as well, and there's not a lot of detail here about how they propose to do that. Again, the third thing is, again, about transparency of company ownership. Again, not so much detail here, but this strategy really targets some of the tax havens uh, in the US, like Delaware, for example, and and a whole bunch of others around the States, um, and their business model of attracting essentially a lot of dark money through um, highly untransparent company, company law. Uh, company registration law. The um, other thing here is uh, he's uh, uh, apparently going to uh, put together a a bunch of new bureaucratic positions across state treasury commerce and the aid world um, as well. So that'll be interesting to see what that looks like. And the last piece of this puzzle is working with with partner countries. Um, So, you know, again, we just talked about the fact that US and EU lawmakers met last week, and that's something for Australia to consider as well. I mean, if this is going to be a big agenda with our, our really um, with major partners, how can we uh, help? Keeping in mind that we have been named in a number of these, uh, you know, the Pandora Papers, um, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, etc., as enablers of dark money too. So, how will Australia respond? Is a is an interesting question. Um, and I would just say one final thing um, on a, on another challenge that this particular package, I haven't seen any detail on it, and that is what to do about the art world. Because, of course, buying uh, Picassos and putting them in Swiss warehouses uh, is another major way um, that these figures, these bad actors, uh, launder their money.
6: Look, I really agree with what you're saying. And I guess I'm sort of thinking more broadly in terms of what's happening on the American political stage at the moment and thinking that if we look historically, multiple, what we've spoken about as as, as false populists have all used corruption as a platform, perhaps at times uh, compounded with race. And I think that not to directly compare Trump to those people historically, but I think there are times in the media where those comparisons are drawn. And Biden's strategy addresses corruption by perhaps inadvertently, perhaps um, uh, intentionally, taking that platform away from the potential false populist elements of the Republican Party and base by articulating it as a problem and a response that's based in bureaucratic, legislative and law enforcement remedies so in terms of will this work to combat the kind of uh, swirling disinformation that has exacerbated the public trust deficit that is, uh, I think, part of this strategy's focus and that of the domestic terrorism strategy, I think this is potentially a move against those vulnerabilities um, that we've seen exemplified in the rise of, for example,
5: QAnon and ultimately the January six riots. Yeah, I think this is such an such interesting um, territory, and uh, you're absolutely right. One of the hallmarks of f- false populism is always an anti-corruption um, platform allied with some sort of race-inflected platform as well. Anti-corruption itself has always been part of the broad movement of actual populism, which is usually uh, uh, about kind of leveling up society in the 20th century, you know, without the race. True populists uh, usually try to minimize race as as um, uh, as a rallying point. So uh, there's no denying that uh, anti-corruption is just is is popular everywhere, and it looks like Republicans, you know, there's a whole bunch of bipartisan support for anti-corruption um, legislation and measures um, as well. But you're absolutely right in the sense that out there uh, in the U.S. voting community. Essentially, uh, the swamp and draining the swamp was such a, a rallying cry and has been such a rallying cry. So I suppose this, this approach is trying to say, look, if, if you want to see who the swamp is, this is the swamp. This is what the swamp looks like, actually, and it's global and it's net- networked and it's authoritarian and it's anti-American and it's anti-democracy. It's trying to tell that story. So I think the problem is, um, is you know, always if you cast it that story in just bureaucratic or legislative terms, uh, the public can't get a handle on it, you know, they can't get a purchase on it. So a lot of it is, good I think, at that meta-narrative level, going to depend on the power of, of uh, you know, the Biden administration's storytelling about this to the American public. Absolutely. Great to chat to you, Anastasia. Brilliant to chat to you too, Tegan.
0: That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with... Peter Jennings, ASPE's Executive Director, and Professor John Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor at Swinburne University, Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at ASPE, and Arthur Snell, former diplomat and host of the podcast Doomsday Watch, Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Programme. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns & Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.